purpose of human incarnation. In the last lesson, we spoke about those forces that try to prevent us from achieving the purpose of our incarnation. That enemy and its tricks that block us, distracts us, and cause us to get lost in the first heaven called earth. Now, in this lesson, we will learn the purpose of our human incarnation, and we will see how these beautiful but sometimes painful journeys are giving us exactly what is needed to advance spiritually. So much so that at the end of the incarnational process, we return to our source more privileged than our archangelic brothers who never left their oneness in God. Now we need to address the million-dollar question. Why should we come here? Why incarnate? If, as we stated before, that we as a spirit start from a place of perfect oneness in God, why did we incarnate at all? What's the point of entering the dual worlds of illusion, suffering and facing all these worldly troubles? Were we forced to do it by God? No. The first gift from God to all spirit beings is free will, which means that it's both God's will and our own free will as spirit beings to incarnate. Now that we are incarnated, we don't remember this choice, do we? But why in the world would we choose this? There must be an exceptionally good reason for it, don't you think? We're going to try to give, give you three different allegories that help give some answer as to why choose to incarnate. Imagine, if you will, that there are two boys, and they're born in a room, and they grew up in a room only full of light. They've never seen the darkness, ever. They grow and grow, and then when they're about 12 years old, you ask them, What's the light? What can they say? They don't know anything but the light. They have no answer for you. But if you would take one of those boys outside and show him the night sky, and then bring him back in and again ask him, What's light? Now he knows something because he's seen the darkness. Now he has something to compare the light with. And by this comparison, he understands better. Well, that is the prodigal son. That's the human being who is incarnated into these worlds of shadows, learned by their experiences, and come back to where they start from, the light. Now the prodigal son comes back enriched by his experiences and understands the fullness of God in both conditions, the dual worlds of existence and the non-dual realm of beingness. He knows better now than the archangels who never experienced the shadows. The archangels understand it, theoretically, but not experientially. It's like an architect that builds a building but has never built that building himself. And this is another way to understand this point of why incarnating. It's one thing to design a big building on paper. In one day of designing, you can make a crew of many, many people work for several years by just what you draw on that paper. But until you go out into the world and try to build that building you drew, you only have a theoretical idea of this building. And it's similar with the archangels, who understand duality theoretically, but they've never experienced it. They know about it, but they do not feel it like we do. So when we go out into the incarnation to experience duality, to feel it, to know it, 
to know it directly. And that makes us richer, more privileged in understanding than the archangels who never left the oneness of God and experienced duality. And riches are another way to think about the purpose of incarnation. We spoke in previous lessons about how the spirit-soul-self is projecting a ray of itself downward into the worlds of duality, giving birth to a personality-self. And we might think of this projection like the soul's investment. Now, if you have money, extra money, what are you going to do with it? Well, if you're really into prodigal living, you'll just spend it immediately. But if you are wise, you will invest it, right? So that projection down into the worlds of existence is like an investment to the soul. And just like a monetary investment, you expect some good return on your investment. You anticipate a decent ROI. Maybe it's not money you invest in this world. Maybe it's your investments is to do good in this world. But still, most expect to see a beneficial result no matter what their investment is. In a similar way, It's the same with the soul, expecting a return on its investment of earthly incarnation. As an incarnated personality, we are the point of that one end of the ray of spirit soul. We're like the tip of the spear. We as a personality are going through all the ups and downs of incarnation, and as a soul, we're expecting to get something back from all that trouble. And that something is an enrichment in that it comes from experiencing directly both the shadows and the light, the loss and the gain, the bitterness and the sweetness too. There's a great purpose for all the lessons we must not only learn and know, but to be able to give the answer for. It's one thing to say, yes, we should forgive our enemies. But if someone kills your son, can you forgive that? People must face and forgive petty offenses as well as the most grievous crimes. Now, we're speaking about the human circles of possibilities, and that is the destiny of the archangelic man. Humankind comes first as an archangel destined to become humanized, and it has a fixed circles of possibilities. And let's touch on this again. We come down into incarnation and are born as an infant, girl or boy. That infant grows, becomes a child, a teenager, an adult, and into old age. And all along the way, we get our experiences. Then comes the death of the body, the material body, and we say we pass over. Our body dies materially because it's ended its part of our circle of possibilities, the material part of our circle of possibilities. And that only opens up a new and even larger part of our circle of possibilities. And that's life in the psychic world. And then after the second death, as it's called, we pass from the psychical into the noetical planes. And that psychical part of our circle of possibilities is finished. And now a still larger part of our circle of possibilities opens up until we finally go through the whole process and return as the prodigal son and get restored to our princely status our original princely status. Of course, this takes many, many incarnations to complete the entire circle of possibilities for a human being. Now, the other thing we mentioned is that the circles of possibilities are a fixed law. No one can change it. 
That's why a soul cannot migrate out of a human existence into an animal, or an animal transmigrate into a human. Humans are a soul. An animal does not have a soul, but it's an expression of the instinct given to it by the archangels who created it. Animals have a physical body, but they don't have a soul, and they cannot use the mind directly. A circle of possibilities is permanent. You can't change it. You are born in a material body, and there's no way for that body not to grow old. That aging is part of the circles of possibilities at the material level. But we also have the circles of probabilities, which is not fixed. It's not a fixed law, but it's a number of probable outcomes based on what we are doing now and have done in the past. This circle is under the law of cause and effect. The material circle of possibilities, as we said before, you're born, you start to grow as an infant, but maybe something happens and that infant dies. It loses its material body. That's part of the circle of probabilities, which means that the circle of probabilities allows for the halting of the development of the circle of possibilities. Even with the halting of a material circle of possibilities for someone's material body, as a self-awareness, that person just goes on to a higher plane and continues another part of their circle of possibilities. A plant may grow, and yet at some point it may wither down and die. That is one of the many, many probabilities for the plant. Maybe a drought comes, and the, animal, and the plant dies and it does not get to complete its material circle of possibilities. Now, when we're talking about cleaning our personality up and improving our self-consciousness and self-awareness, what we are really doing is changing the circles of our probabilities. Let's give an example. Say someone never takes up spiritual studies about who and what they are, what God is, what the nature of reality is. That casts a certain set of probabilities with certain limits. But just by setting your feet on the spiritual path, you've enlarged your circle of probabilities. Everything we are doing in life changes our circles of probabilities. In other words, the probable outcomes in our life. This change could be for the better or the worse, depending on what you're doing in life. Now, when a psychic reads people, all they are doing is seeing the shadows of the circles of probabilities that could happen. They might happen. Something may be probable. It might happen, but it might not. Something else may come along and change it, or you may change it by your subconscious or conscious choices. So psychic advice is not always accurate because by your free will, you can change your thoughts behaviors, and ideas, and by doing so, you're changing of your circle of probabilities, and that changes your future. In spiritual circles, it's always said that there are no accidents, there are no coincidences for what happens in your life. That's true, but not because everything is fixed and predestined. It's true because whatever happens to you next is determining by what you are doing now. This means we are casting our destiny every moment with our intentions, our motivations, and especially our actions. 
This means that the time it takes us to reach our goal of self-realization is affected by our circles of probabilities. Now, self-realization itself is destined. It's a fixed destiny in our circle of possibilities. But the time it takes to reach that goal is totally determined by our circles of probabilities. And we are the ones creating those. Let's give a practical example. Say you were born into a fundamentalist family, and they endlessly repeat the old worn-out interpretation of the Bible's teaching of hell, fire, and damnation, which you choose consciously not to accept. And you go off and you study on your own way. So now your life does not end up like they did with the same mindset they had. In other words, you change your circle of probabilities. Studying, reading, anything we do is changing our destiny. Isn't that beautiful? That we have the free will to change those kind of limitations that maybe we were born into or uh, by society cast into. And that brings up an interesting point. What's the relationship between free will or fixed destiny? Is there a a fixed destiny? For us, as the archangelic man, our destiny, our fixed destiny, has become humanized. We are all destined to be born and go through our circles of possibilities. How you go through them is up to you. It's a little bit like if you bought a ticket to go from New York to Los Angeles. Once that plane takes off, you're going to Los Angeles, unless something happens that halts that circle of possibility. But you're destined to go there because you bought the ticket. But how you behave on the plane is your own free will. You could read a spiritual book, meditate, listen to nice music, have a good conversation with the person next to you, or drink those little bottles of alcohol until you sound like you're talking in tongues. It's all up to you. We are all choosing what we do. That's our free will. And by our free will choices, we cast our destiny. Now, we all have a ticket for human incarnation. Fortunately, we also have a return ticket. This means our entire circle of possibilities is destined for us to incarnate and for us to return to our source and be restored to our status as a true offspring of God. Let's look at it as a material, linear progression. Say we are starting from wherever we're located right now, and we're going to walk two miles down the road to our destination. That's our destiny. But along the way, some of us might get distracted from the destination and go off the road to investigate something that interests them and get delayed. Or some of us may want to get there faster and start running toward the destination. Or others may just stop altogether for a while. All of that is our free will, and that determines how long before we reach our destination. In terms of the grand circle of possibilities for us, we are all destined to return to the Godhead and be restored with our divine nature. So it's only a matter of how long it takes to get there and what happens to us along the way. If we struggle against our upward movement in life, we will get painful lessons. The Daskal is called the whip of destiny, which keeps getting harder and harder until we finally say stop. I don't want to just keep beating myself up against the divine laws and suffering. I want to willingly be led by the divine laws and free myself from the way of suffering. 
Now, in ancient Egypt, there was a fellow who was very, very devious, who actually killed a previous incarnation of the spirit soul of Daskalos. Daskalos met him in this lifetime. He said he was just as treacherous in this lifetime as he was then. That was 3,300 years ago. So some people can go against the laws, even for thousands of years, but sooner or later, they will, by the law of cause and effect, be required to learn to cooperate with the divine laws and return back home too. The question is, how much delay, how much suffering and pain will be required to learn this basic lesson? By returning home, we mean spirit self-realization in theosis. This is the ultimate self-realization and the ultimate enlightenment. Enlightenments are just clear breakthroughs in understanding the nature of reality. And as a personality, self-realization is just knowing who you are as a personality, which isn't real self-realization. Real self-realization is soul self-realization and realizing the soul self in its full attunement with God. Spirit self-realization is the ultimate self-realization, and it's realizing your spirit self in full at-one-ment with God. We are all under the law of cause and effect. Christ called it, what you sow, so shall you reap. It's works for good or not so good things. Sometimes we've really done good work in past lifetimes, and we will receive a benefit in future lifetimes. We may even get a lifetime where We can just cruise on automatic pilot for a while if we want to. But in the big picture, a lifetime where we are suffering, learning, and working hard to overcome our troubles is making us more conscious. This raises our consciousness and uplifts our self-awareness. So which is the better lifetime, do you think? Well, everyone wants to be born rich and have it easy, right? But what a detriment that can be because everything is done for you. You do not have to make great efforts in life. And that does not usually help you come closer to God. And this was Judah's problem. He was very, very rich, which made him lazy. He didn't have much to do to survive in life. So he did not develop. He did not challenge himself. But even being born rich, nobody has got it made. And being born rich is not the boon you think it is. Because once luxury enters your life as a guest, it soon becomes the master and can enslave you to riches, whether you were born into them or earned them yourself. Well, of course, there's nothing wrong with riches. What's wrong is that we let ourselves become defined by them and enslaved to them. Maybe destiny has entrusted riches in your hands to be used wisely to do good. This reminds me of a story about an enlightened renunciate who had given up all wealth and worldly comfort to live in the poverty in the forest. Then one day the king of that region was riding by and encountered this fellow. The king begins talking to him. He realizes he has great wisdom. The king announces, we have found a most wise guru here. So the king takes him home and he sets him up lavishly in his palace. Now the renunciate have riches has an easy life with abundant riches. Before he was half naked living in the jungle just by eating berries and roots. But now the king takes him to his palace and sets him up royally with soft cushions, abundant food, and even servants waiting on him. 
The king requested that every day the renunciates should come out and give a teaching, not only to the king, but to the people of the kingdom. And, of course, he taught about detachment from material things, like most gurus do. Some of his listeners said to him, Well, that's easy for you to talk about renouncing worldly attachments. You have everything. Look at you. You're sitting here comfortable in in all this luxury. The renunciate said, I didn't do it. I was just living in poverty in the forest, and the king brought me here. No, they cried. You are a fake, and your teaching is bad. And so some of these people got together and decided they were going to teach this guru a good lesson. So one night they kidnapped him. They put him in a bag, tied the bag up, and took him deep into the forest and left him tied up in the bag. After a little while, he manages to free himself, only to find he's alone in the forest again. So he just sits down beside a stream quietly. Now, it just so happened that the king's son and his entourage were on a hunting trip, and they come across the renunciate, and immediately they set him up with a big tent, carpets, cushions, and lots of food and service to attend to his needs. Then in a few days, his kidnappers decide, well, the guru must have learned his lesson and been made humble by now, and so they decide to go retrieve him. To their astonishment, they find him again sitting in luxury. The point is, the renunciate did not try to get riches for himself to live in luxury, but life itself provided him for him, and they could not be taken away. Sometimes it's just the good karma of your previous personality in a previous lifetime that brings you fortune, which you could call a reward. Or it could be bad karma created in a previous lifetime that comes to you now as troubles and accidents, as a debt to be paid. In both cases, it's a consequence from previous actions, good or bad. Even what you call bad consequences don't come as a punishment, but as a difficulty you must undergo to pay off that bad past karma. But more importantly, it comes as a priceless lesson needed to advance. That lesson is a result of what you've done before, but the timing of this lesson and its details are governed by the lords of karma in cooperation with your inner self. At the personality level, we are choosing what we want, where we go, and what we do, and all that is our free will. Not only is free will the first gift to our eternal spirit being self, but our personality has its own level of expression of free will. And the inner self seldom overrides it. All beings have free will. That's why some can choose to cooperate with the divine plan and become classified as all the archangelic orders, which also includes archangelic man. While others choose not to cooperate with the divine plan and become the fallen one. These are not fallen angels or fallen archangels. Once an eternal spirit being has been classified into an archangelic order, it's not possible for them to fall. So free will is in our divine nature as well as our human nature. Free will is the nature of all beings, and this includes extraterrestrial beings, which are just human beings but in a much higher level of evolution than human beings on earth. All three worlds of existence, the material, the psychical, and noetical, are all worlds of free will. Animals, however, do not have free will. What appears as free will in them is just 
its instinctual consciousness, which has been given to them by the archangel of that species. Now the question comes that when we return to our source and enter full with one with God, called theosis, what happens to our free will then? Well, by this point, your will is God's will. But the ones that reach to that state, they hesitate slightly, as I mentioned before. They hesitate before entering theosis because they imagine if they merge with God, they will lose their self, just like losing a cup of water when it's poured into the ocean. But it's not like that. What they find out is that they don't lose the self. They are in the total oneness with God, but can come out of that state and express themselves individually anytime they want. And guess what? They do come back out and serve as logos, as, of a, as logi of a heavenly bodies. A logos of a planet, sun, or galaxy is like the living being, is the living being governing that planet, sun, or galaxy. The Greeks and other ancient cultures have long known that Earth is a living being, the body of which is the planet itself. They call it Gaia. In the late 1700s, United States of American statesman and sage, really, Benjamin Franklin declared that there was a God governing each heavenly body. So in reaching theosis, you are in God, at one with God, but you're also still maintaining your own beingness, your own sense of self. Now, a lot of times we hear this example about the ocean being an example for God and a human being being like a cup of water from that ocean. And if a scientist would analyze a cup of water from the ocean, he would say, yes, definitely. The nature of the water in a cup is exactly the nature of the ocean water. Both are composed of the same elements, H2O and sodium chloride and all that. Now, in a similar way, it means we are the same as God in terms of our true nature. The big difference is that a cup of water does not have the same expression as the whole ocean. Our expression is our human nature. And that's the difference between human nature and divine nature. Let's talk about the archetypes. We've talked about the archetypal idea of man, but let's talk about the archetypes of plants and animals. We have said that when a spirit ray becomes humanized by passing through the archetypal human idea, an archangel from the metathrone also projects a single ray of its spirit to become egofied or in full atonement with us and travels along with us for all our incarnations as our own guardian angel. Well, something similar happens with the plants and animals. They are not souls. They are not a being coming out of the holy monad. They are archangelic expressions. And the way it works is, again, a metathrone, a high-level archangel, holds the archetypal idea for a plant or an animal species. Let's say, for example, a dog. And a metathrone takes an archetype of that dog for projection into the worlds of existence as a life form. But... Now, you have to realize there are 36 different species of dogs, and not just domesticated dogs. Wild dogs, jackals, all fall under this archetype. So the metaphone is projecting the main archetype for dogs, but for the projection of this archetype of dogs, sub-archetypes are created, and the metaphone projects 
principal angels, elementals, but these are angels, but they are elementals of the archangel. And he projects these in, projects these for all the 36 species. But out of the 36 species, there are 360 different breeds of dogs. Now, the principal angel over the 36 species is also projecting out governing angels to be in charge of the sub-archetype of each of those 360 breeds. Then again, these governing angels project out individual angels for each and every individual dog. Each one of these 360 breeds gets an angel that governs all the individual animals, meaning for every animal, it has its own angel behind them governing that individual animal. What they do is to provide an instinctual consciousness appropriate for each form of life, plant or animal. They are also constantly recording back information on the experiences had by the individual life form. Just like our experiences are being distilled and recorded by our guardian angel and our permanent personality. Now, for the animals, each individual angel lives as long as the physical body of that dog governs lives. When this dog dies, that angel goes back to the governing angel of the breed. And all the experience of the individual dog are recorded in this governing angel. And when any breed of dog becomes extinct, then the governing angel of the entire breed returns to the principal angel of the species. All the experiences of that breed are preserved by the principal angel of that species. And it's the same thing with trees. The archangel holds an archetypal idea of the tree, and there are two kinds of trees, deciduous and conifers. Let's pick the deciduous. And so it holds an, and projects an archetypal idea and sub-archetypes for all the different kinds of trees. For example, a deciduous oak tree. But then again, there are over 600 different kinds of oak trees, and each one has its own sub-archetype expressed by the governing angel of that oak tree. Then again, this governing angel projects out an individual angel or nature spirit for each individual living oak tree. When that oak tree dies, its nature spirit goes back to the governing angel of that kind of oak tree. It's such a well-ordered plan where everything existing is governed and cared for by these higher intelligences. There was a story about the National Geographic Society finding a previously unknown tribe. This story is about how the experience of individual animals is communicated back to their governing angel and their principal angel. And that information gets passed on to the next generation of individual animals. Now, this happened in the 40s when the National Geographic found this Stone Age culture living in an extremely remote area, and they were all vegetarians. The National Geographic Society were the first people to encounter this tribe. At the time, the deer would come up around the, the tribe members without any fear because the, the tribe members were vegetarians. They did not eat the deer. The National Geographic Society were so surprised to see these deer come up to the people, and they wrote an article about it in their magazine. Then much later in the 50s, they decided to go back and revisit this primitive tribe to see how they were doing. But... By this time, other people had heard about the tribe and had visited them. 
when the National Geographic Society returned, they found this tribe wearing t-shirts, drinking beer, and now they were eating meat. And now the deer would not come up to the tribe because they had started eating them. This means that when you start killing the individual's animals, the experience of that animal is communicated back to the governing angel of the species. So when the next round of individual animals are born, they are programmed not to trust man. This information on the life forms and the angelic intelligence government is not just from Daskalos and the researchers of truth. Many report these findings, such as Finhorn, Scotland. Finhorn is a place in northern Scotland. It has a rocky soil, harsh environment, and somewhat close to the Arctic Circle. They built a spiritual ecological village there, founded by several people in the late 40s, and they ran experiments on growing plants there. One of the founders was a lady named Dorothy McLean. She had stated exactly what Dasko said about the archangelic intelligences governing the plants. What they did at Finhorn was to talk to the flowers and vegetable plants to help them grow better. Now, we've all heard about this, but they took it to a whole nother level. Because of their work and studies, they discovered there was an intelligence behind the plant. And if you could communicate with that intelligence, it could change the outcome of the plant. It couldn't jump from its circle to possibility of the plant, but it could be the best version of that circle of possibility. So in this horribly depleted soil in northern Skyline, they grew enormous fresh fruits and vegetables and flowers because they loved the plant and they spoke to the angelic intelligence behind the plant. And what Dorothy revealed is, and I quote, just by the simple act of trying to address the intelligence, whether you call it a nature spirit, an angel, or the archangel behind it, just by the fact that you start to talk to it, it gets their attention because nobody pays attention to them. So Finhorn learned to communicate with the intelligence behind the plan, and that produced amazing results. So the idea of talking to your plants helps them grow better is totally correct. Try it and see. Thanks for listening. Please join us in the next lesson called Finding the Hidden Treasure, as we will describe the process of seeking and finding the real treasure that awaits for us in life. Where is this hidden? Where is this treasure hidden? In our own divine nature.